Amen. He is coming. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated, if you would, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to see that song that we were just singing is about the second coming of the King Jesus. Today in our passage, we're going to see Jesus going into Jerusalem. And the people were singing very a very similar tune as we read this. Now, I want to tell you, for those of you who have not been with us, uh, we have been studying for a year now this Gospel of Luke. The passage that we, uh, we're going to read and study today typically is read and studied during Easter time because it happens, it took place on what we call Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But we're going to study it today and we're going to see that Jesus is going to have three different actions. He's going to, he's going to make three actions that also teach three statements. And so we're going to finish out all of Luke 19 today. And see this exciting and glorious time as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So with your Bibles open, begin reading with me in Luke chapter 19 in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. I want to stop right there because uh, we need to see the context of this. Many of you were here this past Wednesday night and we study what is called in our Bibles the, the parable of the ten minas. It starts in verse 11. It goes down through verse 27. And what we saw in that is that Jesus uh, told this parable of a nobleman who was going into a foreign country to receive his kingdom. He was going to be made king. And the whole purpose of that was until he comes back, he was, he was helping us see that he, was, that he was the king. And until he comes back, we are to be vigilant, that we are to be found working, serving him. And so he tells this parable, and following this, we see that Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who have been with us over the last year, it's probably been six or eight months ago, we were in Luke chapter 9, and we looked and studied verse 51. And really, four or five times since then, we have seen the gospel writer make reference to, and Jesus was going toward Jerusalem. In Luke 9, 51, the gospel writer Luke says, and Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, and that was significant. Because it was at that point we see Jesus marching on to Jerusalem where he knew he would die as a sacrifice for our sins, where he understood that he would be raised to life. And ever since then, time and again, Luke has said, now Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Well, it's finally happening. Jesus is finally going to enter into Jerusalem. And so Luke says, verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has, has yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being one of those disciples that Jesus sent to go take someone's donkey? And if they were to ask you, why are you taking my donkey? All you had to say was, well, the Lord has need of it. Can you imagine, as I read that, there's a, a little bit of a timid, a little fear that wells up within me to go and take someone's donkey and just simply, if they were to ask, say, the Lord has need of it. Now, we don't know. There, it could be that this was just uh, a miraculous visitation from the Holy Spirit on the guy who actually owned the donkey, that when he heard those words, he knew he had to let it go. It could be that he was a disciple of Jesus, 
Uh, and when, when those disciples said the Lord has need of it, he said, okay, well, if Jesus has need of it, then you can take it. Or it could also be that Jesus had worked out this with the man that on this certain time, on this certain day, approaching the Passover, I am going to need this donkey. It really doesn't matter if it's one of any of those three and maybe either some more possibilities. Because the significance is not that this man didn't know. The significance is going to take place with what Jesus does with this donkey. And so verse 33 says, and as they were untying the colt, the owners actually said, why are you doing this? Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, look at what the people were doing. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. They were wanting to give Jesus the red carpet treatment, as we would call it. If we do a wedding, most weddings will have a flower girl that drops the rose petals on the floor before the bride comes in in order to honor the bride. If royalty were going to be here or in in countries that have royalty, before the king or the queen comes in, they roll out the red carpet in order to honor the king or the queen. And that's what we see the people doing with their cloaks, with with their garments, with their coats. They were laying that down, giving Jesus the 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 respect that he was due as the king. They were recognizing him as king, laying down their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, look what they were doing. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works he has seen, they had seen. And this is what they were saying. Basically what we were just seeing They were saying, the king is coming, the king is coming. They were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Look at the response of the Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. At the risk of having a corny joke in the sermon, if... Jesus is saying that I tell you, if, the, if these people were silent, the stones would cry out. It would have been the first rock concert recorded in history. Thank you. I know that was corny. I didn't use it first service. They wouldn't have laughed. I, I figured y'all would give me a little bit of love. We see this. We see this magnificent scene in Jesus' life where he rides in on a donkey. What is the significance in Jesus' life, in Scripture, in, in, in our understanding of Luke chapter 19, what's the significance of the king coming in on the donkey? Well, there are three things that I want to point out, three things that I want us to discuss of why the significance of the king is coming. First of all, and maybe most importantly, what Jesus was doing here is that he was fulfilling Scripture. Because back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, if you're taking notes, that's your first thing. The king is coming. In Zechariah 9, 9, 600 years before the birth of Christ, this is what the prophet Zechariah said about the king, about the Messiah. Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now understand, the people that were all singing these these hosannas, singing praise to the king, they were all like Jesus on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. 
Listen, even if you had a donkey, you would not ride the donkey into Jerusalem for Passover. You would get off, you would walk your donkey in because you wanted to show humility. And so when Jesus was riding this donkey in, everybody, including the Jewish leaders that we'll talk about in a moment, they understood what he was doing. With this action, they understood that Jesus was saying, I am the king that Zechariah prophesied about in Zechariah 9.9. That was his action, that was his statement from doing this, I am the king. And the folks would all know it. They would be familiar with Zechariah. They would be familiar with this prophecy. The Jewish leaders knew it. And that is why they said, Teacher, don't let them do that. Don't let them call out to you and sing praises to you. You can't let them do that. That's inappropriate. And that's when Jesus said, Listen, if they don't do it, the rocks are going to cry out because they know who I am. And so everyone would recognize Jesus did this act to make the statement, I am the king that's prophesied in Zechariah 9. But there's another understanding of why Jesus did this. He was forcing the the Pharisees' hands. You know, we have seen the Pharisees have this dispute with Jesus over the last six or eight, nine chapters. And we've seen Jesus come against them and bring charges against them and talk about their hypocrisy time and again. But they would simply just argue with Jesus, not like what he had to say. They would try to derail Jesus, try to trip him up with questions, but they were letting him go because the crowds were following him and they were scared. When Jesus does this act, when he comes into Jerusalem for the Passover on a donkey, they had no other choice. They knew we have to kill him. Jesus was forcing the Pharisees' hands by doing this. He knew the time had come. Time and again, over the past several months, as we've been studying this, Jesus would say, it wasn't time. It's not the time. It's not the time. It's not the time. Well, now's the time. So Jesus comes in riding this donkey because uh, he wants to fulfill. He knows he has to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. He rides this donkey so that the Pharisees will have to do this. They will have to now do what has to be done, and that is crucify him on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus is making the statement there. I am the king. Why did Zechariah prophesy that he was going to ride in on a donkey? If you're like me, I think about a king riding on a donkey. That doesn't seem right, does it? A king should be riding on a stallion. In Jesus' day, we would want something that was regal and, and majestic and strong and powerful. That's what the king should ride in on. Why didn't Jesus ride in on a stallion, on a horse? Well, again, the, the prophecy of Zechariah was riding on a colt, but there was meaning to that. There was an understanding in that. In Jesus' day, when a king would come into a town, he would ride on one of two things. He would either ride on a donkey, as Jesus was, Or he would ride on a stallion. And according to what he was riding, told the townspeople a lot about the king. If the king were riding in on a donkey, the king was making a statement, I'm coming in peace. I'm not coming to judge you. Uh, I'm not coming to say that you've been a bad townspeople under my leadership. I'm coming just to visit. I'm coming in peace. 
Now, if the king were to ride a stallion, if the king were to ride a horse in, it would be his war horse, and the townspeople would know, you better beware, because this king's about to come, and he's going to bring judgment on us. He's bringing his armies with him, and we're in trouble because the king is on his horse, not on his donkey. For us today, maybe it'd be similar to a general that goes into a town where a war has been taking place. If the general rides in on his jeep, with the, with the top off, okay, he's coming in as peace. But if the, if the general's coming in in the tank, he's about to unload some mortars on that town, and we better, we better run for cover. That was the difference in Jesus' day. And as Jesus rides this donkey, not only is he forcing the disciples' hands, not, uh, the, prophet, the, the um, Pharisees' hands, not only is he making the statement that he is the king prophesied in Zechariah 9, but Jesus is also letting all the folks know, I'm coming in peace. I come in peace. If you'll remember, as we began this a year ago, we were studying in the beginning of Luke that one of the names, we look back at Isaiah 9, one of the names for Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But church, congregation, will you hear me well today? Jesus comes in peace. Jesus is coming in peace. And Jesus offers peace. And he is the Prince of Peace. But we read of another time. That's actually what we were just singing about, David. The king is coming. We're talking about when he comes again. We really weren't singing uh, Luke 19. But I told David earlier in the week, hey, we've got to sing that song because, man, it goes right along with that idea. But can I tell you something? We read in Scripture of another time when Jesus is going to come, and it's called his second return. Understand the significance. If you want to turn there in Revelation 19, understand the significance of what Jesus is writing in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, it is the return as we were just singing, the king is coming. Revelation 19 is where we get it from. But listen, in Revelation 19, his second return, he's not riding a donkey. What's he riding? He's riding a stallion. John, who sees this vision of this time taking place, he calls it his war horse. Listen to what he says. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's coming not for peace, he's coming to judge, to make war with those who are his enemies. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head has many diadems, and his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, and the name is... King of kings and Lord of lords. Hear me well. Luke 19, Jesus comes in peace. But when Jesus returns, if you are not on his side, if you have not already allowed him to be the king of your life, it's too late. The next time he comes, he's coming on his war horse, on his stallion, and he is going to bring judgment. We have the opportunity today. We have the opportunity now to receive, and to allow Jesus to be our king. Because it's too late. If it were to happen this afternoon, if it were to happen tomorrow, and you see the Lord coming on his horse, it's too late at that point. He gives us the opportunity now. And so you can see this 
this atmosphere. It's a joyous atmosphere where all the people are singing out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven on glory and glory in the highest. They're celebrating. It's joyous. They're already joyful because the Passover is coming. They're already joyous to be going to Jerusalem. And now the king is coming in. Zechariah 9.9 has been fulfilled. And what does Jesus do? We might read and think, man, he's just a killjoy. He kills the he kills the joy of the moment. He kills the excitement of the moment. Because we read in verse 41, and when Jesus drew near and he saw Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps. Now, we've seen Jesus weep again at the death of Lazarus. Two different words used there for weep. That, that uh, death of Lazarus, it was a sorrow, but it was kind of a, a gentle weeping. The word here in Greek for weep, that he wept bit- bitterly. He was weeping bitterly as he saw Jerusalem. Everyone else is excited and singing and joyful and celebration. And Jesus sees Jerusalem and he, he just begins to weep. Why? Because we see Jesus said, What that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's coming in on a donkey. He's riding in on a donkey, proclaiming peace as the king. And he says, Jerusalem, if you had only known that this day the things that make for peace. We see the king coming. Now we see the king crying. He's crying because he knows that Jerusalem is going to deny him. That today they may be singing, Hosanna, the king is coming, but not just too long, they're going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And by the way, if you want to do some personal study, verse 42, you need to write in your Bible, that's a reference back to Daniel chapter 9, where the prophet Daniel also talks about the king going into Jerusalem. So Jesus is weeping. He says, oh, Jerusalem, had you known the things that were, that would, if you had known that who I really am, that I am the king that's coming in peace. But then he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. These folks had seen and heard firsthand all the miracles that we've been studying over the last year. They had seen and heard firsthand the teaching that Jesus had been doing throughout the streets and throughout the villages. But Jesus says, you're blinded to it. You're blinded to the truth that I am indeed the king coming. And that's what made Jesus cry. Because he understood that they were blinded in the hardness of their heart. Even though they had seen it, even though they had heard it, much the way people are today. They've seen Jesus in Scripture. They've heard the word proclaimed, but yet they've denied Jesus as king time and again, and now their hearts are so hardened to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah that they're blinded to that truth. They're blinded to the fact. And so Jesus is weeping over the lost. Church, when was the last time that we as a church, we wept over the lost? What I I hear not what I hear across Christianity in, in the United States. It's not a weeping over the lost. 
it's uh, saying we go to that Revelation 19 and where Jesus is going to come not in peace but in, in righteousness and judgment. We want to focus on, come on, Jesus, come on and judge all those sinners. That's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus was he was, he was weeping because people were lost and didn't know the peace that only he could give. What a lesson for us. Where's our weeping over the lost in our life? Where's our weeping over our spouses, over our family members, over our friends, over our community, over our nation that is lost? Jesus weeps for their lost. And then he gives a prophecy. We see the actions there. And the statement is going to be, this is not in your bulletin, but if you want to take notes. So the action is riding on a donkey. The statement is, he is the king. The action is he stands and he weeps over Jerusalem. In verse 43, he begins to to speak a prophecy. The king is also a prophet. That's the statement. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that he's about to enter into. He's prophesying that because of their denial, there was going to be destruction. And can I tell you, some 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. Rome came in and wiped the city out. The soldiers burnt the temple to the ground. The fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave for, the, for Jerusalem because they denied him as king took place some 40 years later. Not quite 40 years later. And again, we can also understand that in our life because what we're, what we're taught throughout the epistles, throughout the New Testament, is that when we deny Jesus as king, When we deny Jesus as Messiah, destruction is surely to come. So we see Jesus as king. We see Jesus as prophet. He's crying over Jerusalem, so he's also a prophet. He speaks prophecy over him. And now in verse 45, we see Jesus going into the temple. And Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so now we see Jesus cleaning or Jesus cleansing the temple. Other gospels go into a little better detail than Luke does. And we know that as he goes into the temple and he sees all the things that were taking place, um, Luke just simply says that he began to drive those out. Other gospels tell us that he began to turn the tables over. Not only did he begin to turn the table, tables over, those who were robbing from the folks he drove out of the temple because he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. Remember this statement because we'll come back to it in just a moment. Why was Jesus so upset? We'll understand the details of it in just a moment. But the ultimate reason why Jesus was so upset is because those folks, the religious leaders, had taken what was supposed to be sacred in the temple and they allowed it. They had actually turned it into something that was secular. They had taken the sacred worship of Jehovah God in the temple and they turned it into a secular act. How had they done that? What was it that angered Jesus so much? Well, what had happened... In Jesus' day, what had transpired up to this point 
in the outer court of the, of the temple, it was called the, the court of Annas. Two high priests in Jesus' day, Annas and Caiaphas. And they were in charge of this outer court. And so all the people, all the Jews from miles around were coming in for the Passover. We're about to begin Passover week. So all the Jews were coming in for the Passover. And what happens during Passover? You bring your spotless lamb for a sacrifice if you can afford it. If you're a poor person, you bring your doves in for a sacrifice if you, if you can do that. That's what the poor were to give. And so what had taken place, what had transpired up to this point was this. That Annas, in the court of Annas, and Caiaphas, who was in charge of this, they had decided, you know what, it's a lot easier if we just provide the sacrifice for people. Some of these folks have to come from miles and miles and miles around, and so to bring that sheep in would be difficult. And so they would just simply say, come on for Passover. Uh, church historians say that at some point there were 200, as much as 240 sheep that were sacrificed during Passover in Jesus' day. And so what they would do, you just come on to Passover, come on for this celebration. Don't worry about bringing your sheep. You can buy one here. But the problem was, the problem was, let's say a sheep would normally, uh, would normally cost $10. They would charge $50. What Annas and Caiaphas had done was develop this system of franchises. And they would allow franchises into this court and all the lambs in those franchises would be approved because if you brought your own lamb, it had to go through that approval process by the priest to say that it was worthy or not. And if you would bring your own, nine times out of ten, they would say, no, there's a blemish here. You can't use it. And then you had to pay even more for one of those sheep that were already there that Annas and Caiaphas had allowed franchisees to, to have. So instead of charging $10, they would charge, they were robbing here, these, these guys, the, the Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, they were robbing from the people in the temple, in the sacred place of the temple, and they were robbing from the people. Maybe a dove would cost 10 cents. They were charging $10 to the poor. And so all these franchisees would have their franchises of, of selling spices or, or, or doves or sheep. And Annas and Caiaphas would skim off the top. They would get a percentage for allowing these franchises in. It was a racket. It was legal robbery that the Jewish priests were allowing in the temple. And so Jesus just comes in and he sees what had happened, that the sacred had become so secular. And he goes... And he turns other tables. The king is cleaning. He's cleansing now. And the statement that he is making is, not only am I king, no, not only am I prophet, but I am also priest. And I have the authority. Church, we have to be very careful in our time. Can I tell you, overall, the church in America has ceased to be sacred and has become secular. We're guilty. There was an article that I read this past week by a guy named Matt Slick. And he writes for, um, it's called CARM, C-A-R-M, it's an acronym, 
And it stands for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. And he writes in this article about this very thing of the sacred, the church becoming secular. And he, he gives some indicators. I'm not going to list because he, he does a ton of them. I just want to hit some of the highlights. He, he has a list of how to tell if your church has gone from being sacred to being secular. He says one of those is that the teaching of the Bible, they teach that the Bible is not the inspired and inerrant word of God. This is the Bible. This is the word of God. And they say this is good. This is moral. But no, it's not the inspired and inerrant word of God. Sometimes they say, well, the New Testament, yes. The Old Testament, no. He says at that point, the church has ceased to be sacred and they've gone to secular. He says, number two, they use other sources instead of the Bible for Bible study. Other sources could be books. Other sources could be movies. Other sources could be videos. The Bible is no longer the source of their teaching. They use other things. He said at that point, the church has gone from being secular uh, from being sacred to being secular. He says next that there is teaching that, is there, that there is more than one way to God besides Jesus. That we have brothers that are Muslim and we have brothers who are Hindu and we have brothers who are Jewish. He says next that they're embarrassed to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They begin to teach those churches that have gone from being sacred to secular. They begin to teach that there are no absolute rights and wrongs. They're careful to not offend anyone at the expense of biblical truth. They will compromise biblical truth because they say we don't want to offend those who may come. They preach moralism. They preach moralism, which is good they preach being good instead of Christ-centered messages. They do not condemn the sins of society that are against the teaching of God's word. They use psychology as an authority on human nature, not God's word as an authority on human nature. In essence, what they're doing is instead of seeing Jesus as king... They see Jesus as a good role model. I wonder what God would do in some of our churches today. What Jesus would do in some of our churches today. If he, if he saw the way the sacred had turned secular in his day. What must he think when he looks at the church in America? So what's the big deal? All these, all these statements that Jesus makes, all these actions that he makes, we see him crumbing, we see him crying, we see him cleansing, cleaning. The statement is, I'm king, I'm prophet, I'm priest. By the way, in the Old Testament, there are three offices that are God-ordained. Those three offices are, number one, the prophet. And the prophet speaks on behalf of God. Number two, the second office is priest. And the priest is the intercessor between the people and God. 
And number three is the king. They are to lead God's people. And what we see in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28, is we see Jesus fulfills all three. Making no doubt he is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. So the question for us is, the the truth of Scripture is Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The question for us is, how can we better serve the King? I've been trying to really wrap my mind around the significance, the application of all of this, the rest of this passage in Luke 19 and, and, and seeing what Jesus does and understanding those statements. And the conclusion that I've come to is that if we really believe that Jesus was king, we would live it out. If we really understood and believed that Jesus was king in our life, it would probably take place, it would probably be evident in many other ways, but there are two that I just want to share with you that, that I just thought through. That if we really, as the church, lived as if Jesus were king, number one, we would live with confidence. And by confidence, I mean that as the church, we would say, you know what, our kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't mean we don't get involved in politics. It doesn't mean we don't vote for the one who has, who seems to uphold the, the biblical truth. But it means that if we truly understood Jesus as king, as priest, as prophet, we would say, you know what? My citizenship is not in America. I'm not an American who is a Christian. I am a Christian. That is my citizenship. I'm part of the kingdom of God. And because I'm part of this kingdom of God, I'm going to follow what he says. And so I live confidently that no matter how politics goes and no matter what the world is going through, no matter what we hear happen on the other side of the world, that there's a confidence that we know, hey, Jesus is still king. No matter who's present, no matter what happens, Jesus is still king. He knows what's going on. He's not rocked. He's not, he's not challenged by anything that he hears. He's not fearful, and neither should we be fearful Because we're confident that Jesus is our king. And the things of this world is going to pass away. But the things of his kingdom will not. And so we live confidently. But secondly, not only would we live confidently, we would also live with conviction. We would live with the conviction of Jesus is my king. And as his servant... I need to live my life to please the king. We would live with conviction that, oh, that's not, that's not pleasing to my king. What I'm doing, my thoughts, my words, that's not pleasing to the king. I need to, I need to confess that and repent of that. And I need to live a life that's pleasing to the king of kings. A life of conviction. That if my king would weep for the lost, I need to be weeping for the lost. If my king has called me to be holy, I need to live that holy life. That's if we recognize and truly believe that Jesus is our king. The truth of the matter is, whether we recognize it or live it or not, he is. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day he is coming back. Until then... Going back to the parable we studied Wednesday night, until then, may we be found faithful. 
investing the gospel that we have heard into the lives of everyone around us. Would you bow your heads? Would you stand and bow your heads? With your heads bowed, I want to give you an invitation today. I'm going to be at the cross over on the, your left side of the church after the service is over. Tracy's going to be at the cross as well. Do you need to allow Jesus to be your king today? You've hardened your heart so many times, but today you know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Today, do you need to allow Jesus to be the king? He's already king of kings. Do you need to receive him as your king today? Well, you might say, well, MJ, I don't know quite how to do that. Then you come and let us, let us share with you. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've had a time of confession and repentance. You've called out to him, but you've not been living in confidence and you've not been living in conviction as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And there just needs to be some, there needs to be some confession there and some repentance there. And you want one of us to pray with you, allow us to pray with you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you to join our faith family and be a part of a church that in all humility we strive. We pray over, Lord, if we're being secular, you reveal it to us. Maybe you want to be a part of our faith family. I invite you to respond as the Holy Spirit leads your minds and hearts today. Heavenly Father, your Son, Jesus, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what a great time we've had today to sing praises about him and to him and for him. God, if there are those today who have not called out to the King of kings, they've not called out to your Son as their Savior, may today be the day that they become a citizen of the kingdom of God.